Book Four, Chapter Seven of Clara Vaughan, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra. Clara Vaughan, Volume Two, by R. D. Blackmore. Book Four, Chapter Seven. Chapter 7 Next day, when I showed my uncle the two sealed packets which I had rescued, and told him all that had happened, at first he was overcome with terror and amazement. His illness seemed to have banished all his satirical humour, and that disdainful apathy which is the negative form of philosophy. He took the parcels with a trembling hand and began to examine the seals. All safe, he said at last, all safe, to my surprise. Dear child, I owe you more than life this time. You have defeated my worst enemy. To your care only will I commit these papers, one of which I hope will soon be of little value. It is my will, and by it your father's estates are restored to you, while the money which I have saved by my own care and frugality is divided into two portions one for you, and the other, upon certain events, for that worthless Mrs. Doldy. This must be altered at once. When you have heard my story, you may read the will, if you like. Indeed, I wish you to do so, because it will prove that, in spite of all our estrangement, I have meant all along to act justly towards you. But that you may understand things properly, I will tell you my strange history. Only one thing you must promise before I begin. What is it, Uncle dear? That you will forgive me for my one great error, although it was the cause of your dear father's death. I could not answer for a minute. Then I took his hand and kissed it as he turned his face away. My darling, I am not quite strong enough now after all you have been telling me. Although I had dark suspicions yesterday, that some plot was in action, for I had observed that things in the study were not as I had left them, and I had other reasons too. But take me, my precious child, to the sunny bank this afternoon, and please God, I will at least begin my tale. I begged him in vain to defer it. There was a weight upon his mind, he said, which he must unload. So in the early afternoon I wheeled him gently to the sheltered nook, there with the breezes way lost among new streets of verdure, tall laburnum dangling chains of gold around us, and Guidice stretching out his paws in sunny yawns of glory. I listened to my uncle's tale, and was too young to understand the sigh which introduced it. How few may tell the story of their lives without remembering how they played with life, Alas, the die thrown once for all, but left to roll unwatched and lie uncounted. Though I cannot tell the story in his impressive way, I will try to repeat it, so far as my memory serves, in his words and with his feelings. Solemnly and sadly fell the history from his lips, for his mind from first to last was burdened with the knowledge that the end was nigh at hand that nothing now remained 
except to wait with resignation the impending blow. Story of Edgar Vaughan I have always been, as you know, of a roving, unsocial nature, my father being dead before I was born, and my mother having married again before I could walk. There was little to counteract my centrifugal tendencies. I seemed to belong to neither family, though I always clung to the Vaughans, and disliked the Daldies. The trustees of my mother's settlement were my virtual guardians. For all the Vaughan estates being most strictly entailed, my father had nothing to dispose of, and therefore had made no will. My mother's settlement comprised only personal estate, for no power had been reserved under the entail to create any charges upon the land. The mortgages, of which no doubt you have heard, as paid off by your father, were encumbrances of long standing. The estates, I need not tell you, were shamefully mismanaged during your father's long minority. An agent was appointed under the court of chancery, and an indolent rogue he was. Meanwhile, your father and myself went through the usual course of education, no difference being made in that respect between us. Although we were only half-brothers, we were strongly attached to each other, especially after a thorough drubbing which your good papa found it his duty to administer to me at Eton. It did me a world of good. Before that, I had rather despised him for his gentleness of his nature. At Oxford, after your father had left, I kept aloof, both from the great convivial and from the thinly peopled reading set, and lived very much by myself. Soon, as the humorous doings, whose humour culminates in the title Lectures, Soon as these were over, I was away from the freckled stones, punting lazily on the churwell with French and Italian novels, or lounging among the gypsies on the steps of Cowley Hall I never frequented, but dined at some distant tavern and spent the evening, and often the night till Tom curfew, in riding through the lonely lanes towards Otmore, Aston Common, or Stanlake. It was strange that I never fell in love, for I had plenty of small adventures, and fell in with several pretty girls, but never one I cared for. Gazing on the wreck I am, it is no conceit to say that in those times I was considered remarkably good-looking. Of course I was not popular, that I never cared for, but nobody had reason to dislike me. I affected no peculiarity, gave myself no airs, behaved politely to all who took the trouble to address me, and the world, which I neither deified nor courted, followed its custom in such cases, and let me have my way. At Lincoln's Inn my life was much the same, except that wherries succeeded punts, and evening rides were exchanged for moonlight walks in the park. It was reported at home, as it is of most men who are called to the bar, that I was likely to do great things. There never was a chance of it. Setting aside the question of ability, I had no application, no love of the law, no idea whatever of touting, and still more fatal defect, my lonely habits were darkening into a shy dislike of my species. You have heard that I was extravagant, 
as regards my early career, the charge is quite untrue. Money, I confess, was never much in my thoughts, nor did I ever attempt to buy things below their value. But my wants were so few, and my mode of life so ungenial, that I never exceeded the moderate sum allotted to me as a younger son. Afterwards, this was otherwise, and for excellent reasons. During the height of the London season, I was always most restless and misanthropic. Not that I looked with envy on the frivolous dust of fashion and clouds of sham around me, but that I felt myself lowered as an Englishman by the cringing, the falsehood, the small baboonaries which we call society. I longed to be, if I could but afford it, where men have more manly self-respect and women more true womanhood. Your parents were married, my darling Clara, at the end of December 1826, six years before your birth. Upon that occasion, your dear father, the only man in the world for whom I cared a fig, made me a very handsome present. In fact, he gave me a thousand pounds. He would have given me a much larger sum, for he was a most liberal man, but the estates had suffered from long mismanagement and were seriously encumbered. I do not hesitate to say that the gross income of this property is now double what it was when your father succeeded to it, and the net income more than quadruple. During the four years which elapsed between that event and his marriage, he had devoted all he could spare to the clearance of encumbrances, and therefore, as I said, the present he made me was a most generous one. More than this, he invited and pressed me to come and live on the estate, and offered to set me up in a farm which I might hold from him on most advantageous terms. Upon my refusal he even begged me to accept, at a most liberal salary, the stewardship of the property and the superintendence of great improvements which he meant to effect. I remember, as if it were yesterday, the very words he used. He took my hand in his, and with that genial racy smile which very few could resist. Come, Ned, he cried, there are but two of us, there's room for both in the old nest, and you are big enough to thrash me now. At the sweet recollection of his eaten drubbing, as he called it, my poor uncle's eyes grew moist. So you see, my child, instead of grudging your father the property, I had every reason to love and revere him. However, I refused this as well as the other offer, but I accepted his present and invested it rather luckily. After spending a pleasant month at home, as I always called it, I returned to London early in April 1827. There are no two minds alike any more than there are two bodies, and yet how little variety exists in polite society. Surely it were more reasonable to wedge the infant face into a jelly mould, to flute its ears and cheeks like collared head, and grow the nose and lips and eyebrows into rosettes and grapes and acorns, than to bow and cramp and squeeze a million minds into one set model. Yet here I find men all alike, Dane and Saxon, Celt and Norman, like those who walk where snow is deep, or alpine travellers lashed to a rope. 
trudging each in other's footprint, swinging all their arms in time, looking neither right nor left, and so on through life's pilgrimage, a file some million deep. Who went first they do not know, why they follow they cannot tell, what it leads to they never ask. I was marked and scorned at once, because I dared to adopt a hat that did not scalp me in half an hour, and a cravat that did not throttle me, and even had the hardihood to dine when I felt hungry. How often I longed for a land of freedom and common sense, where it is no disgrace to carry a barrel of oysters or shake hands with a tradesman. I know what you are smiling at, Clara. You are thinking to yourself, how different you are now, my good uncle, and weren't you a little inconsistent in sanctioning all this livery humbug here? Yes, I am different now. I am older and wiser than to expect to wipe away with my coat sleeve the oxide of many centuries. As for the livery, it makes them happy. It is an Englishman's uniform, and I have seen and suffered so bitterly from the violence of an untamed race that I admire less what I used to call the unlassoed arch of the human neck. I have seen a coarse line somewhere, and freedom made a deal too free with me, which expresses briefly the moral of my life. However, at the time I speak of, nursing perhaps a younger son's bias against the social laws, and fresh from the true simplicity and unaffected warmth of your father's character, and the gentle sweetness of your mother's, I could not sit on the spikes of fashion's hackney coach, as becomes a poor Briton, till the driver whips behind. Finding, of course, that no one cared whether I sat there or not, and that all I got at the side of the road was pea-shots from cads in the dicky, I did what thousands have done before me, and will probably do again. I voted my fellow Britons a parcel of driveling slaves, and longed to be out of the gang. Perhaps I should never have made my escape, for like most of my class I spent all my energy in small eccentricity, if it had not been for what we idlers entitled the force of circumstances. At a time when my life was flowing on calmly enough, though babbling against its banks, it came suddenly on an event which drove it into another and rougher channel. Early one afternoon in the month of April, 1829, I launched my little boat from the temple stairs, where I kept it, and feeling more than usually saturnine and moody, resolved on a long expedition. So I victualled my ship like Robinson Crusoe, and took some wraps and coverings. It was then slack water, just at the height of the flood. I meant to have gone to Richmond, but being far too indolent to struggle against the tide, I yielded to nature's good pleasure, and pulled away downstream. In a few minutes a rapid ebb tide was running, and I made up my mind to go with it as far as ever it chose, and to return with the flood whenever that pleased to meet me. After rowing steadily for several hours, I found myself a long way past my customary cape turn again. With a strong ebb tide as well as a land fresh in the river, I had got beyond Barking Reach, and as far as the Dagenham Marshes. Here some muddy creeks, pills, and sluggish channels wind and welter, 
among the ooze lands on the north side of the Thames. All around them stretches and fades away a dreary, flat, monotonous waste. No dot of a house, no jot of a tree to vary the dead expanse, except that by the riverside one or two low cabooses, more like hoys than houses, are grounded among the slime. This, so far as my memory serves, was the state of these Essex marshes in the year 1829. How it is now, I cannot say. It was high time for me to turn, row as I would. I could hardly get back to my haven by midnight. Outrigger skiffs were not yet known, and an oarsman could not glide along at the rate of ten miles an hour. Just as I was working round, a steam packet, which had been moored a short way below, crippled, perhaps in her engines, now at the turn of the tide, passed up, and was quickly out of sight. As she passed me, I hailed for a tow-rope, but either they could not hear, or they did not choose to notice me. There was nothing for it but to bend my backs to the oars, and keep a sharp lookout. Presently the tide began to make strongly up the river, and I gave way with a will, my paddles bending and the water gleaming in the early starlight. It was a lonely and melancholy scene. The grey mist returning from some marshy excursion, and hugging the warm sea-water, floated along in dull folds, with a white floor of steam here and there, curdling over the current. Not a ship, not a barge was in sight. No voice of men or low of cattle broke the foggy silence. But the wash of the stream on its sludgy marge, or on some honey-combed mooring-post, surged every now and then betwixt the jerks of my rowlocks. The loneliness and the sadness harmonized with my sombre mind. All is transient, all is selfish, all is a flux of melancholy. If we toss and dance, we are only boats adrift. We are nothing more than crazy tide-posts, if we be philosophers. Suddenly a clear, loud cry broke my vacant musings. It startled me so that I caught a crab, ceased rowing, and gazed around. At first I could not tell whence it came, till my boat, with the way she had on her, shot round a low spit to the Essex shore which from the curve of the river I was nearing rapidly. Louder and louder the cry was twice repeated, and I heard in the still spring evening the oaths of men and the scuffling of feet. Within fifty yards of me was an ill-looking house, made of battens and raised on piles above high-water mark. A tattered sign hung on a pole and a causeway led to the steps. While I was hesitating, Two figures crossed a lattice window, as if in a violent struggle, and a heavy crash resounded. Three strong strokes of my oars and the keel grated on the causeway. Out I leaped with the boat-hook, threw the painter over a post, and rushed up the slimy jetty and the narrow wooden steps. The door was fastened. I pushed it with all my force, but in vain. One faint scream reached my ears as of someone at length overpowered. Swinging the boat-hook with both hands, I struck the old door with the butt and broke it open. 
In the lower room there was no one, but a moaning and trampling sounded overhead. Upstairs I ran and into the room where the villainy was doing. A poor girl lay on the floor at the last gasp of exhaustion. Two ruffians with a rope were bending over her. Down went one at a blow of my boat hook, flat beside his victim. The other leaped at my throat. I saw and soon felt that he was a powerful man, but in those days I was no cripple. We were most evenly matched. I wrenched his hand from my throat, but twice he got me under him. Twice I writhed from his grasp like a python from a tiger's jaw. Clutched and locked in each other's arms, in vain we tugged to get room for a blow. Throttle and gripe and roll, which should be first insensible. An accident gave me the mastery. For a moment we lay face to face, glaring at each other, drawing the strangled breath, loosing the deadly grip, panting, throbbing and watching. My boat hook lay on the floor. My enemy spied and made a sudden dash at it. Instead of withholding, I jobbed him toward it with all my might, and as he raised it, the point entered one of his eyes. With a yell of pain and fury, he sank beneath me, insensible. Shaking and quaking all over after the desperate struggle, I bound him and his mate hand and foot with the twisted tarry junk which they had meant for the maiden. At length I had time to look round, on a low truckle bed at the end of the long dark room, in which a ship lamp was burning, there lay an elderly lady in a perfect stupor of fright and illness. Upon the floor, with her head thrown back against the timbers, and her black eyes wide open and fixed on me, sat a girl of remarkable beauty, though her cheeks were as white as death. A magnificent ring, for which she had fought most desperately, was wrenched from its place on her finger, and hung over the opal nail. For her hands were clenched and her arms quite stiff, in the swoon of utter exhaustion. Both ladies were in deep mourning. For the rest a few words will suffice. The poor ladies revived at last, after chafing of hands and sprinkling, and told me where to find the woman of the house, who had been locked up in another room by her husband and brother. There was no one else on the premises. How came the ladies there? What was their destination, and why were they so outraged? They were on their return to London from the continent, being called home by tidings of death, and had sailed from Antwerp two days and a half before, in the steamer which I had seen lying too. Steamers were then heavy, lumbering things, and all that time Mrs. Green and her daughter had been knocking about on a pecky sea. No wonder that the poor mother had cried out feebly to be landed anywhere, anywhere in the world, where things would leave off going round. And before they came to that tedious halt in the river, fair Adelaide, who had enjoyed her meals throughout, renewed and completed her poor mamma's excavation by inquiring calmly, with her mouth full of pickled pork, where the peas pudding was. Now, too, Miss Adelaide soon recovered from her fearful battle for honour and life. She was what is called nowadays a girl of splendid organisation. 
If she had not been so, she would have lain ere now with her mother at the bottom of Barking Reach. The two scoundrels of that lonesome hostelry had been ordered to send to Barking for a conveyance. But they only pretended to do so, for they had cast foul, covetous eyes on the wealth of their unknown guests and on brave Adelaide's beauty. Beyond a doubt, both ladies would have been murdered, but for the gallant resistance, the vigour and presence of mind of Adelaide. Having restored their watches and scattered trinkets, and led the poor things from the scene of the combat, I was quite at a loss for means to convey them home. Barking was a long way off, and the marshy track unknown to me, and not likely to be found in the dark. Moreover, there must be some hazard in leaving them still in that villainous den, no matter how their cowardly foes might be bound. At last, and with great difficulty, I embarked the two ladies in my shallop, and wrapped them warmly from the night air. Then, after relashing my prisoners and locking them up in separate rooms, and the woman downstairs, I pulled away stoutly for Woolwich. Here I obtained a carriage and started my convoy for London, and then returned with two policemen to the old row barge, as the low caboose was called. But both our birds were flown, as I was inclined to expect. Most likely the woman had contrived to get out and release them. At any rate, the old row barge had no crew, and the deserters had set it on fire. The flames, as we rowed away, after vainly searching the marshes, cast a lurid glow on the mud banks and on the slackening tide. A true type it was of what soon befell me, the burning of my caboose. The two men were caught long afterwards by the Thames police and transported for life on a conviction for river piracy. At least I was told that they were the men. And of course, dear uncle, you fell deeply in love with the beautiful Adelaide Green. Of course, my dear, a young lady would conclude so, but at present I must not talk any more. I had several times tried to stop him, and what I have next to relate is matter of deeper feeling. By Jove, to think how I battled with that strong man, and now your little fist, Clara, will floor me altogether. He sighed, and I sighed for him. Then I thought of Mr. Shelfer and gloried in my prowess as I wheeled my uncle home. End of Book 4 Chapter 7